Well, good evening. It's, it's good to be together again tonight. And let's take a few moments to bow our hearts as we uh, begin our Bible study. Father, we thank you for your incredible grace, your foreknowledge and understanding all the children that would come and be part of your family, Lord. And we consider it a tremendous privilege and honor, Lord, to be part of your eternal family. And with that kinship that we have with one another, and especially with you as our Father, it gives us a responsibility to you and to one another, Lord. And so we ask, Lord, as we study your word, that we'll find our place individually, that corporately we might glorify you and bring forth fruit, Lord, that remains fruit that honors you and glorifies your holiness, Lord. And we ask through your Holy Spirit that you would open the word to us, that we might grasp the significance, Lord, of what is written here and been given to us, and allow it to impact our lives. So open your word to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we make our way through the New Testament here, we are with Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, we opened up last week with chapter 4, the applicational section now, the part of his epistle, 4 through 6, what is chapters 4 through 6 for us, uh, to apply our position and the blessings that we've been given in Christ. And obviously the first thing that's of vital importance to anyone and the body of Christ, and to any church in particular, is that there's unity. How important it is to be unified. And so this really is becomes the foundation of all the works that God wants to produce. Without a oneness, without a unity in a, in a local church, without that in the universal body of Christ, we're going to fall short. We're, gonna, we're not going to apprehend all that God has apprehended us for. And so Paul... Rightly so, uh, lays forth this foundation of unity that we talked about in depth last week. And now, uh, which don't really fully understand Paul's mind here, but he goes right into the gifting uh, that has been given to the body. So he's moving from this position of unity and stressing the importance of it to now the diversity that within the body of Christ there are these giftings that... Uh, and there's a, a an individuality uh, within the church, but uh, and accordingly, um, we're all blessed with a gift that we're to exercise and to uh, use, as it were, for the glory of God. So this is where we're going to pick it up here in verse 7, where we left off uh, last week. And so let me read simply tonight, uh, verses 7 through 10. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And so this is somewhat uh, peculiar 
in in the sense that uh, he leaves this position of unity going into diversity and starting uh, with this quote from Psalm 68. And what is going on in Psalm 68 is one of the 14 or so messianic psalms um, given to us uh, through David and others. And he quotes verse 18 of Psalm 68. I think it's important uh, before we begin to break that down, you can be turning there if you will to Psalm 68, uh, that without the gifts of the Holy Spirit, without the anointing that's given by God, the church can never become all that God intends it to be. All things are from the Lord. All things are to the Lord. And so this work that he's doing in the church is obviously a supernatural work. You know, none of us are born by the will of man. We're all born again by the will of God. And then in that born again state, just as we in our earthly flesh birth were given natural gifts and talents, so now has being spiritually born again, we're gifted with these supernatural graces that are to be used to build up, strengthen, and edify the church, as we'll get in later on in our study in this chapter. But we're looking at, or trying to understand what Paul is thinking. And why does he quote Psalm 68 to lay the groundwork for this tremendous work that God wants to do in the church? And I I found it quite interesting uh, that he uh, would quote from this psalm. And so going back there to Psalm 68, we just a simple perusing through it, we see that it's talking about uh, the glory of God, his victory, the leading of the children of Israel, uh, actually from Egypt out of bondage through the wilderness and eventually into the promised land. And then, of course, later on, we have this whole idea of moving the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and it there uh, as David desired it to be there at Mount Zion and all. And so this great victory, as it were, of bringing God's people from out of bondage into the promised land to celebrate the glorious victories of, of God over all his enemies. And so that's sort of the whole idea there. And it's just the whole nature and character of God is sort of there in this first part of the psalm. You know, God isn't really impressed with um, the mighty things that man is able to accomplish. He is drawn to, we see this throughout the scripture, he's drawn to weakness. He's drawn to the humble people of, of no account. You know, that's sort of what he, he, Paul says to the Corinthians, not many mighty, not many noble, that whole idea there. And so this is why this message is so appropriate for you and for me. I mean, who are we amongst the billions of created ones? Who are we among so many within the church today? We have we have of no account, really. You know, like David, for example, he was a little boy, so to speak, a young lad, 
out taking care of sheep, and God plucked him out of the sheepfold, shepherding those sheep to become the shepherd of his people. So God loves to take the the weak, the despised, the neglected, the fatherless of the father, you know, become the father of the fatherless, you know, and defend the widows and the weak. And we just see that he did that with all through the scripture. And Israel himself is a, a real example of this. And so this is sort of reciting that. This psalm has sort of captured that thought. And then uh, it's as though Yahweh, the victor, has taken them all the way through these steps, through their generations, and planted them in the promised land. And and, and David, the writer here, is, is just exalting in this. The ultimate victory of God over his enemies. And then he 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 talks, you know, in these grandiose terms of, you know, verse 17, the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. And the Lord is among them as in Sinai in his holy place. This the glory of God that was made manifest there. You know, the triumphant God. And then the whole idea of eventually, you know, heaven and earth meeting together at some point in time. It is as though God went out to war, to war against the curse, to war against this fallenness of mankind, and has come back victorious and brought with him a, a whole host of people who are now his. And it's almost as if God is ready to ascend back to his throne and sit down and rejoice in the victory that he's wrought. I think you kind of imagine some of that there. And so you kind of get this here in verse 18. He, you have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You've received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord might dwell there. So, we're not again. We're not real sure um, exactly what Paul had in mind when he snagged this verse, as it were, out of Psalm sixty-eight uh, and us and bring it to the church. But we can draw some parallels there, at least. You know, it it talks about even from the rebellious. Now let's think about that for a moment. Were we all not? estranged from God, from the womb. We've all, like sheep, have gone astray. We were all, everyone turned to his own way. Well, that that one own way is another way of defining rebellion. And yet God somehow changed our hearts, changed our minds, and we've repented and we've turned. And now we belong to him. We were as it were, held captive, just like Israel was held captive by Pharaoh there in Egypt, and they were he was set free under the leadership of Moses, God doing mighty signs and wonders to bring forth his people unto himself. The same has happened to the church. Those who have been called out, the ecclesia, the called out ones, we have been set free, we've been forgiven, we've been released from the chains from our bondages and and as it is with kings returning from war they bring with them the spoils of war you know and they you know often david would uh, come back from these tremendous victories with huge amounts of spoil and he would dedicate a number of these things to the lord and in this case the victor here isn't 
keeping the gifts for himself. He's distributing these gifts among the rebellious ones, the ones who have changed their hearts and have come uh, in, under his authority now. And so this is uh, sort of the, I believe, partially anyway, the groundwork that Paul uh, is laying here for us to understand God's purpose in the gifts. Now, verse 7, now as we turn back here to uh, Ephesians, verse 7, are these gifts are according to the measure of Christ. Gift. His measure. It's his assessment as to what each one of us are created for and unto and have the capacity for. These gifts that are, as we're going to see, are are measured out exactly for what you and I have been called to do. Only God is the giver of gifts. There's nothing in any one of us that would merit the gift. We don't choose the gifts. God chooses the gift. It's his measure. It's his assessment. And it fits us perfectly. Our personality, our natural inclinations and, ta- and talents that we've been given as a gift from him in creating us in- initially. But these, without the operation of these gifts, without us really coming into that intimate knowledge where we know this is what God is doing in our lives, we will never really perfectly e- e- image the Lord. You and I cannot image God without the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Think about Jesus for a moment. He went out to the wilderness and was tempted for 40 days. He returned in the power of the Holy Spirit. That power, that expressed exceeding great power that was upon Christ never left. Everything that Jesus did, he did as a man under the anointing and empowering of the Holy Spirit. And such is the case with you and I. We are to be filled and anointed with the Spirit using the gifts that He has bestowed. And that's why, it's to me, it's just unthinkable that the gifts and whatever they list you choose to look at would have ceased with the apostles in the first generation. That is, to me, the most ludicrous thought. If they needed them then... We need even even more now. And the laying of the foundation of the church they are absolutely necessary. But how much more necessary they are some 20 centuries later to continue to build the kingdom of God. It's not done by natural talent. It's done by the supernatural anointing of God's spirit. And of course, let's, you know, again, look at this thought that without the unity of the body, Without the oneness, then these gifts are are like a you know a clanging symbol. Without the love, it's useless. And so this unity and this love must be present. Impact to happen as God intends it to happen for the fruit to be produced that needs to be produced. Now <clears throat> he. <clears throat> When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts unto men. Now, verse 9. Now, he ascended, what does it mean? Well, what does it mean? You ask the question. Well, 
we understand what the ascension was. I mean, after the 40 days of being with the apostles and appearing to them and instructing them and showing them from the scriptures uh, his sufferings and how important it was for Messiah to suffer, <clears throat> they really got an Old Testament education, as it were, during that 40-day school of ministry, if you will. And then it tells us that he ascended and was taken up into heaven. So that's that's what the ascension means. That's what it means he ascended. He went back to where he came from, so to speak, and returned to the glory from which he had left behind to incarnate. Now he's there's the glorified Christ. He's different in appearance. Revelation 1 would express that description to us quite well. But before he ascended, according to this, verse 9, he first descended into the lower parts. Now, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. And there are those who believe that this particular portion of Scripture, uh, Luke sixteen nineteen through 31, is a parable. And I, I don't believe that it's a parable to me. Uh, I think it's simply a story. And uh, this is something that I believe that the Lord revealed to us so that we would have a bigger, better understanding of the unseen realm. Now, when you read through Paul's writings, and you'll see it in in Ephesians as much as any of his letters, he has a very, he's very conscious of the unseen realm, that there's something going on around us that we cannot see with our eyes. And we have a lot of that activity today as I <clears throat> take a little digression here you know there's this talk of aliens you know alien talk well i just want to set the record straight we are not do not be deceived by this extraterrestrial alien invasion it's not going to happen like that at all what we have is interdimensional beings that manifest themselves these are the Demonic forces, the fallen angels, which are two different kinds of creatures from the unseen realm that are in the fallen realm. Those are in disobedience to God. But they're allowed to manifest themselves from the unseen realm into the seen realm in which we dwell. And so it's not extraterrestrial, it's interdimensional beings that we need to be concerned about. And so this is the great deception that uh, is going on in the world today. And as you read through the writings of Paul, you can see that he's very aware of this warfare that's going on. These powers and principalities and rulers of the darkness that seek to control nations and influence peoples and political decisions and all that, that go on. You, you can't explain some of the decisions that are going on in government today apart from this spiritual war that seems to be taking place. It's, it's obvious that these people are, are being directed and led by uh, something beyond themselves. And there's, some of them are such liars. I mean, nothing but lies come forth from their mouths. It's, it's quite disturbing, actually. But I have digressed enough here. So let's go to uh, Luke 16. Uh, in beginning in 19, here's here's a story. Now, the previous context here 
uh, you know, because you are, you have to be concerned about context. There's the language doesn't allow, necessarily allow that they're connected. Uh, there's no reason that they are, but for some reason, the Holy Spirit using Luke put this after uh, the story or Jesus being addressing the Pharisees who were lovers of money, and they were deriding him and all because you know Jesus was not exactly. Uh, walking around in purple robes as he ministered to people. He was just like commoner, and he looked very common in his apparel. And so um, I think verse 15 sort of encapsulates what Jesus was trying to say to these guys. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And then he goes on to talk about the law and the prophets and John and all. Uh, and then this whole idea of what they were really doing, divorcing their wives for any reason at all, and, you know, that's adultery and all, marrying someone who's divorced. He, he lays that groundwork. But then he, for some reason, Luke lays it down this way, that he launches into this story because I believe it's based upon the, this whole love of money and, and love of the material world, and, and that if you really have that, that shows you're smarter and that you're, more in favor of God. God's favor is upon you. And so that sort of justifies uh, the way you think and the way you live and your paradigm of life and all. And your value system is right. After all, if you didn't have that, you wouldn't be able to possess such great wealth. And so you kind of look at your wealth as something that proves that God's on your side type of thing. And Jesus really sort of rebuked that. And so I think this story is set in this context for that reason. Uh, there was a rich, certain rich man, and we'll read it here in verse 19, who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, Remember that in your lifetime you received good th your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted and you are tormented. And besides this, between us and you are, is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. I find that quite interesting statement there. Later on, Jesus will 
raised Lazarus from the dead. And even though Jesus did that tremendous miracle the day before, as it were, the triumphant entry, and the Pharisees having witnessed all this, the leadership having witnessed all that, they still refused to believe. And then when Jesus himself raised from the dead, they continued to reject the truth. So uh, amazing, incredible thought. People don't receive the word of God. If they don't accept the Bible as the word of God. Now there are all, there's so many translations and people will give you a myriad of excuses why they don't really need to study the Bible, read the Bible, or they can't trust the Bible. Hogwash. There's enough truth here for life and godliness. It gives us sufficient amount of information to do what we need to do, and that is to repent and to believe God. It gives us enough information about the nature and character of God that we can trust Him with our, for eternal life. So let's not become judges of the Word of God. Let the Word of God judge us and make us aware of our need for Him and our need to love one another. And so, uh, again, this whole what do we glean from this portion of Scripture that's so important? Well, we learn from this in the unseen realm, apparently, uh, at least at this point in time, of Jesus' ministry, that all people in the Old Testament went to a place after death called referred to as Abraham's bosom. Apparently, in the lower parts of the earth, there were two compartments, if you will. One of paradise, Abraham's bosom, and another place of torment. And according to verse 26, between those two compartments, if you will, was a great chasm that could not that was no not traversable you couldn't get from one point to the other it was sort of blocked off by that chasm and for for various purposes and so uh, we find that according to Jesus statement and he gave a sign that is Jonah was 3 days and 3 nights in the belly of the great fish so will the son of man be Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So it is believed that upon Christ's death, when his spirit left his physical body on the cross there, that his spirit went down into the lower parts of the earth. He went down into Abraham's bosom. He went down into those areas of the unseen realm uh, where the souls of the departed left. And he proclaimed victory. Atonement had been made. The veil had been torn. The blood had been applied. And and then we see, you know, in Matthew's gospel, there at the end of the gospel, on that resurrection day, that there were seen various saints that had died walking the streets of Jerusalem. And Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians 15 as the uh, first Christ and the first fruits from the dead. And so... Jesus being the first of the resurrection, and then these others that were also raised at the same time. And then on his ascension, he sort of cleaned out that compartment. Abraham's bosom, as it were, uh, they were transferred with him. They ascended with Christ and now have their abode in heaven. Now, as Paul said, for the New Testament believer, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
Christians don't die and go into the lower parts of the earth, to that place of paradise. That place is no longer needed uh, for that. Since atonement has been made on that heavenly altar, the one that Moses was exhorted to construct one just like it. Follow the pattern that I've shown you in the mount when you make this Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. That blood, that heavenly altar, that heavenly mercy seat has been applied. Blood has been applied. Atonement has been made. Man, forgiven man, can now enter into the presence of a holy God. God is just and God has performed justice in punishing sin through himself, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is uh, what we are gleaning here from this. There's obviously a number of things you can pick up from this, which we won't spend a lot of time here in Luke. Uh, But uh, first and foremost, you can't miss this. The rich and the poor die alike. You might be rich and you might have everything you want in this life, but you're still going to die. And if you're poor, you're going to die. We all know that. Is it appointed a man once to die, then after this, the judgment. And it's interesting that when the poor man died, he, assuming it is assumed, he's a believer. He went to Abraham's. He had, a lo- he had loyal love towards Yahweh. He kept the covenant the best he could. He was just poor for whatever reason. But he's met by angelic messengers who take him to Abraham's bosom, sort of as it were, protecting him in that unseen realm so that he might have a, a, a safe arrival there in paradise. And then we also see that the unbeliever uh, was not by, met by any messengers. It just says he died and was buried. Now it is possible that he was met by some uh, unfriendly messengers, uh, but uh, the point is he was now still in existence. This is the point. You just don't die, and that's it. There is existence beyond this life. You are going to leave your body. Your body will die, but your person is a spirit. It is a soul. It's immaterial. It's going to continue to exist either in a place of torment or a place of paradise. This is what we can glean from this story. And this guy immediately, upon his burial... And during this time, he entered into a place of torment and that there was no getting out of that place. He couldn't leave it. He was trapped in that torment. And that is an unthinkable thing to consider that there are people who refuse to the lordship of Christ. They refuse forgiveness that God offers And they will go to their grave in rebellion against him. And they will forever live separated from God. That is a hard thing to grasp. But this is what the scriptures teach us. So this is Paul's, I believe, Paul's framework. Which he is about to present to the church. It is the victory of Christ. There were shouts of victory. There were shouts of glory. Could you imagine the eruption and the praise service that broke forth in Abraham's bosom when they saw the crucified Christ come and demonstrate and illustrate to them that forgiveness and atonement 
was now complete. When he said, it is finished on the cross, they saw, they understood. And then they left with the king. So he's now taking the spoils, as it were, of war. And he's now ascending to heaven with the former rebellious ones, if you will. (laughs) What a glorious victory it was that Jesus wrought for us. And rather than just heaping it all upon himself, which he deserves all the glory and all the honor and all the praise, as God's nature is, it's always to give. He is others-centered. He is the most humble, others-centered being in existence. And what does God do in, in that nature and character of his? He gives. He knows that what natural man has in and of himself is not sufficient for what the church needs. And so he is going to gift the church, the rebellious ones who have repented, Though those that have received a new divine nature, as Peter describes it, those who are partaking of that divine nature, he's now filling those individuals with his spirit. He is now gifting them uniquely and specially with gifts to serve the body of Christ. He says in verse 12, I'll jump ahead a little bit, but this is for next week. He's going to gift the church with leadership, so that the body can be equipped. It it will know how to do the work of the ministry, the services that need to be performed, so that the body is built up. This is the purpose of God's gifts, of spiritual gifts, to the church. A supernatural work of God, under the supernatural gifting and anointing of the Holy Spirit, will bring forth supernatural fruit that will glorify God. And that way, man cannot glory in any of this. It started with God. It's expressed by God. It's anointed and given by God. And the glory belongs to God. Just a beautiful way that God has set it up for you and I. And so the question for you and for me remains, how is it that God has gifted you what is your spiritual gift? What, how are you uniquely equipped to help and do the work of the ministry to strengthen the body of Christ, to help build up the body of Christ that is so needed in this day and age? And so I would encourage you. Now this list that we're going through is, is sort of the specific offices within the church, but 1 Corinthians 12 would encourage you to go there Kind of refresh yourself with those gifts. And then Romans 12. Also give us a list of gifts. Those, those are the gifts that he gave to the church. And you have one. Some of you may have several. You're not necessarily limited to one gift. You may have a primary gift. But they're usually people are gifted in several different ways. And it's something that you, just as you like, you grow uh, from child, child, you know, a toddler to adolescent to to adulthood. You learn yourself. You you learn to know yourself. You you begin to understand your 
abilities and your capabilities in certain areas and you're you're stronger in certain areas than other other areas and you you and usually you just sort of go tend to go in those directions that you've enjoy and that you're good at well it, but they're the point is you're just you discover them they're learned and so it's the same with spiritual gifts we don't just become born again and just know it all about ourselves we sort of uh, learn our propensity spiritually speaking we see our tendencies we we find out what we really like when we in serving other people and, and our gifting goes along with that you know, for example, teaching is a very common gift in the church, and there are many people in the church with the gift of teaching, and that is so needed because people need the knowledge of God, as we'll see um, here in the, as we make our way through this study. So just want to encourage you, uh, seek the Lord. Read through these chapters, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, here, and and just ask the Holy Spirit, ask the Father to enlighten you lord what's what's my gift how do you want to use me i'm you know you're perfectly you know you're perfectly qualified because a lot of you are thinking well i'm not very smart i'm i don't know the bible very well and you sort of have a very low opinion of that god couldn't possibly use you and that actually that's what qualifies you when you realize you're like a david or you're like Paul describes there in Corinthians, not many mighty, not many noble. You're a nobody. Well, welcome to the crowd. Then that makes you a perfect candidate for God to use. It's the ones who, uh, those of us who might think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, that sort of disqualify themselves. And so I'm glad you feel that you aren't very gifted because you are going to discover that God has gifted you uh, perfectly so that you might image him in a very powerful way in building up the body of Christ. So, happy searching, happy seeking to you. Uh, We have a giver of gifts that's just waiting to instruct you, guide you, and anoint you so that you might fulfill his purpose and glorify his name. Father, we thank you for your word and the tremendous encouragement it is to us. Where would we be, Lord, without your word to instruct us, to guide our thinking, to see things from a different perspective, Lord? Thank you for your word and preserving it for us. And we ask that you'd continue to open it to us, give us a heart and a hunger and a thirst for righteousness more and more, especially as we see the day approaching that it may be taken from us, Lord. Prepare us by writing your word in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.